Do you love Uncover from CBC Podcasts? What's your favorite season? Which one did you skip? What do you want to hear more of? Help us make Uncover even better by taking our listener survey now. Visit cbc.ca slash uncover survey to make sure your voice is heard. This is a CBC Podcast. All I do know is that nobody was ever charged. Alberta didn't just go missing. She didn't just go missing and she didn't just walk away. She knew the person, she trusted the person. You still feel like people are afraid? Probably, you know, and it's been really hard because some of our immediate family members were a person of interest and suspects in uh, being involved with Alberta that night. Were you afraid to go to the police? Yeah. I just had to be quiet. And I was like, oh my God, what have I done here? We really just want to get your side of the story. We're doing the story about Alberta and we really want to hear from you about her last night. Can you tell us anything about it? Was she at your house? I'm Connie Walker and this is Missing and Murdered. Who Killed Alberta Williams? A podcast and CBC News investigation. As soon as I read Gary's email, I knew this day would come. The day we would try to track down the person he named in that email, the person he believes killed Alberta. It was a gray morning, cold and windy, when we got on the ferry to Vancouver Island. With every passing minute, I felt increasingly anxious. Almost as soon as we started looking into Alberta's case, we came up with a list of people we wanted to talk to. People who were with Alberta on the night she disappeared. People who might have answers about her unsolved murder. We talked to Gary Kerr, the former RCMP officer who was the lead investigator in her homicide case. We talked to Alberta's sister, Claudia Williams, who was also with her on the night she disappeared. But there were at least five more people we didn't talk to. A mix of friends and family members. They were the other people that Alberta sat with that night at the bar. I thought if Alberta said she was going to a party after, maybe they went too. Or even if they didn't, they might know who Alberta left with. Yeah, Kevin Kitchen was with Carol. And Phoebe was married to Gordon McLean. Mm -hmm. And Jack was there by himself. But it wasn't as easy as calling them up and getting all the answers we wanted. Some of the people we contacted didn't want to talk about Alberta's death. It brought up too many painful memories. Some didn't even respond or acknowledge our requests. Others we simply couldn't find. But there was someone we didn't even try to contact. Someone we wanted to wait before calling. Someone we were pretty sure wouldn't want to talk to us. The person who was named in the email that started us on this road. The person who Gary believes killed Alberta. The person whose identity we haven't revealed until now. Alberta's uncle, Jack Little.
Jack was Alberta's uncle through marriage. He was married to her mom's sister, Rosie Marsden. Claudia told us that when she last saw her sister that night, 27 years ago, Alberta told her she was going to a party at Jack's house. Before I go any further, I absolutely need to stop here and point out that Jack has never been charged in connection with Alberta's death. He's certainly never been convicted. In fact, as far as we can tell, Jack has no criminal record at all, unlike some of the other people on our list. I also think it's important to point out that Gary's suspicions about Jack are based on his investigation from nearly three decades ago. And despite his beliefs, the RCMP's investigation into Alberta's murder hit a dead end in 1989. But Gary has always believed that Alberta's murder can still be solved. Absolutely, it's a solvable case. If some person or persons were just willing to, you know, step up to the plate, if you will. We were taking a gamble getting onto that ferry. Jack didn't know we were coming, and we had no idea if we'd even be able to find him. We had an address in Port Alberni, B.C., a small city on Vancouver Island. But honestly, we had no idea if Jack still lived there. Or if he did live there, would he be home today? We didn't know if he had a job. We didn't know if he was still married. We actually knew very little about Jack. It was difficult to try to track down information about him without alerting him that we were coming. We had to get special approval from the head of Journalistic Standards and Practices at CBC News to try to interview someone without first asking their permission. Those kinds of requests are only granted in certain circumstances. We talked a lot before we left about whether to try to contact Jack in advance to ask for an interview. We knew that in the past, he left town when police were first investigating Alberta's murder and we didn't want to lose the chance to try to have a conversation with Jack. But trying to find Jack wasn't the only thing making me anxious. I was more worried about what would happen if we actually found him. What would his reaction be to us showing up out of the blue, asking what he knew about the murder of his niece 27 years ago, a murder in which, according to Gary, he was a prime suspect? Would he talk to me? Would he slam the door in my face? Would he get angry? We had no way of knowing, and that only added to my anxiety. Gary told us what happened when police tried to talk to Jack after Alberta's body was found. I hate to use the word cooperate with us. It's not cooperating with us. It's just simply, tell us what you've seen. Uh, tell us what you did. Tell us where you were. And that person who was very close to Alberta and that was confirmed by all the family, and chose very, very quickly after the body was found. <laughs> Again, I hate that word cooperate, but chose not to speak with us, I guess might be the best way to put it. And that raised, and still raises huge, again, red flags, if you will. Gary says he wasn't the only RCMP officer who suspected Jack in Alberta's murder. Rick Ross was also an RCMP officer who worked with Gary. I left Rupert in 92 and got transferred to 
He's retired now, but he remembers Alberta's case well. Yeah, no, it's one of those cases when you when you do retire, you always think about the one thing you never solved. Alberta Williams was one. I got to know her family there fairly well, and I worked on the file. And it was a small town too, so you know, it kind of uh, hit my home there pretty hard. Rick and Gary worked closely together, so maybe it's not surprising that they drew the same conclusions. We uh, we pretty much identified who we thought was responsible right away, probably within the first 24 hours. Yeah, uh, and that's never really changed. Gary and I have talked about that. I've talked with other investigators about it, and everybody pretty much shares the same view, yeah. But, you know, it's the old story, and that's the game we play. you got to have the evidence, or, uh, you know, before charges are laid, you got to have the evidence, and we just never quite had enough evidence. But uh, Rick says hundreds of people were interviewed in Alberta's case. He says their interviews and their evidence pointed back to one person, Uncle Jack. But, yeah, everybody that we interviewed said that they basically saw her leaving with her uncle. And uh, there was just nobody else that she was seen with that night, right? Mm-hmm. And he's still the prime suspect today, from what I can learn. Mm-hmm. There was just a whole lot of series of events that led up to her, you know, concluding that. But on the other hand, too, you never want to get tunnel vision, you know, so we always left every avenue open. But mm-hmm. uh, it always came back to him, eh? So. And like Gary, Rick didn't believe Jack's story, that Alberta left the bar with a white guy in a pickup truck. There was always a mysterious uh, pickup truck with some, I believe, Caucasian guy that, that uh, Jack Little told us about, and uh, that, that never, ever went anywhere. And we always felt that was always sort of a, you know, something that was thrown out there to mislead us a little bit, and uh, I never did believe that, but, yeah. Because mm. according to him, she supposedly left the, the bar with this guy in a pickup truck and went back to their house. But, uh, we, uh, you know, I think we put out a uh, composite sketch of the truck and a description of him, but it never ever materialized in anything. Hmm. Did, did he give you enough of a description to actually even make a composite sketch? No, we didn't do a composite, but I, I do believe he gave a physical description. And he, you know, he described the Caucasian guy fairly young, and he described, I think it was a Ford pickup truck, an older Ford pickup, 4x4 four four type truck, described the truck. And that just never, ever went anywhere. We just never came up with anything. And of course, uh, we know that she was back at his house. So the mysterious guy in the pickup truck never did that, never went anywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know she was back at his house, how? Uh, well, he, Jack told us, I mean, he told us that, uh, that this white guy in his pickup truck had driven her back to his house. Now, why he would have went there in Alberta, steered him there, who knows, if there was such a guy. But uh, they did supposedly arrive at that house, and uh, that's the last uh, place we could put her down at it. And like Gary, Rick says his suspicions intensified after Jack refused to cooperate with police. That's what jumped out at us right away. Like, why wouldn't an uncle want to talk to you right away, right? Or at least the last person who's seen her, right? Or, you know, family member that saw her at his house the night before. I mean, yeah, there should have been 110% cooperation, and we didn't get that. So right away, our antennas went up, right? There's something not right here. Was he ever given a lie detector, a polygraph, or anything like that? I think that? he was, yeah, he was requested to do so, and he, he would take one on the advice of a lawyer, as I recall, yeah. Oh, no, that was considered right away, yeah. That would have cleared up a lot of things for us if he had done that, but he chose not to, and that's the exercise his right, which is his right, but if you were a family member and the last person saw your your niece, you know, you'd think that you would want to do that, right, to clear your name, right? Yeah. But that's the world we live in, right? The police weren't the only ones who noted Jack's behavior after Alberta vanished. Hello? Oh, Larry Marsden was another one of Alberta's uncles. 
He remembers when he first heard about her disappearance. I was there most of the day Sunday, and uh, Rena and uh, her husband were really upset, and uh, they just didn't know where Alberta was. And uh, already that, at that time, there were stories, uh, different stories that came out, uh, who all seen Alberta that night. And the first person of interest that came up was my brother-in-law. Jack's wife, Rosie, was out of town that weekend. She and their son went home to Gittenyau, a reserve two hours east of Prince Rupert, to attend a party for her mother, Alberta's grandmother. Larry says that Jack arrived at the party late on Saturday, the day after Alberta disappeared. And do you recall if, if Jack was there, too, at the gathering? He came late. I think we were at the dinner when we heard that Alberta went missing. This was on Saturday. And we were at the dinner and everybody started getting concerned about it. Did you notice anything about Jack when he came to the dinner? Was he just like acting normally or was there any anything of significance? Well, I didn't really talk to him. Until we got back to Rupert, we seen him. And he looked uh, he was really nervous. He said he was there that night. He seen Alberta, and uh, and then after a while, we kept asking him questions, and he started changing his stories, saying different things after, and he was really nervous. By that time, everybody knew he was with her that night. Do you remember what, how his stories changed or what he originally said? You know, I can't really remember what he was saying. But, uh, all I remember him saying was that he seen her that night. And after that, I, I noticed he was changing, starting to say, change his stories. And then Marina noticed it too. And I started really questioning him as they really wanted to find out where she was there. Eh? On September 27, 1989, Gary went to talk to Jack's brother, Alphonse Little. He was also at the bar the night Alberta disappeared. 890927-1040. Here are Gary's notes from their conversation. Jack is getting phone calls. Caller never says anything. Alphonse was there on Sunday night when two calls came. No voice on the other end of the line. Thinking of selling the house and car, leaving and starting all over again. Jack has said he was very drunk that night and feels the person who was with Alberta may have been the one who killed her. He cannot recall the male who was in the house. Feels he fell asleep and when he woke they were gone. Losing sleep, taking prescription sleeping pills. Father flew up from Father flew up from Port Alberni on Monday and back Thursday. A week ago, he says the cops were harassing him. Has told Jack and Alphonse and Father that he should get a lawyer. Jack was a pallbearer. Yeah, we lived. Our house was directly across. We were on the low side of the street. Dick Chadwick was a neighbor of Jack's when he lived in Prince Rupert. They both lived on Crestview Avenue, 
a quiet street in a residential neighborhood. You know, basically, if we look, I look straight out of my front window into his front window, his driveway lined up with my driveway. Dick didn't know Alberta, but distinctly remembers what happened on Crestview Avenue after she disappeared. Uh, on at least one, and I think more occasions, again, we were woken up, uh, my wife and I, in the middle of the night. It was, something was going on across the street, very noisy. It was a group from Alberta's family that were at Jack's house trying to get in. They were shouting, they were chanting, they were screaming, they were pounding on the door. Do you remember what they were saying? No, I wasn't going to get close. It was fairly soon after that he left Prince Rupert. So his his move out of Prince Rupert was pretty abrupt? My guess from the amount of anger on that night that they were pounding on his house and banging on his doors and screaming and yelling, there was so much anger. And I don't think it would, at that point, I don't think it was safe for him anymore to be in Prince Rupert. That's my personal opinion. And very soon he just disappeared. In one of our earliest conversations, Gary told me that after Alberta's body was found, Jack stopped talking to police and abruptly left town. He found that suspicious, but he never mentioned that her family was harassing Jack, and that may have been the actual reason he moved away. Did you notice if the police ever came to talk to Jack? I can remember him once either leaving or coming home uh, in the back of a police car. Dick says the police also came to question him about Jack. They came down to the CIBC where I was working and uh, just, just, just one police officer. I can't remember which one it was. I knew most of them up there. <laughs> was it Gary it Kerr? Was, could have been. I think, was he a sergeant or... or maybe Rick Ross. I think Rick Ross was the sergeant. I think it was a non-com or one of the sergeants that not one, not one of just the regular constables, just sort of getting background information, sort of of, of Jack himself and, you know, as, as a neighbor living directly across the street, just sort of question, you know, question, asking questions about uh, if I could recall any information. I basically told him what I knew at that time, you know, what I, what I could recall. Did you recall anything suspicious about comings and goings at Jack's house after Alberta went missing? We heard that another neighbor referenced the fact that he always kept his blinds closed. It was strange that his blinds were always closed after Alberta disappeared. I can't really recall that, whether that was the case or not. Did you ever talk to Jack around that time? No. After Alberta went missing and her body was found. It was wide knowledge in town that he was the last person seen with her. I mean, that was common knowledge in Prince Rupert at that time. She had been at his house, you know, being his his niece. She and Jack had gone out, I know, downtown Prince Rupert, and, you know, drinking beer or, or whatever that night. Uh, Alberta's best friend was Geraldine Morrison, she was at the bar that night and was questioned by police after Alberta disappeared. Was she having fun that night? 
Yes. Yes, we were. Everything was going as the way it should have been going. But after I left, I never seen or heard of her after until the cops come up to me and ask me if I've seen her or know where her whereabouts and ask me to trace where we went and everything we did. And I said, we didn't go anywhere. We just stayed at, at Bogies. That was it. We didn't go. No house party that I know that she would have went to or they asked me where she might have gone. Geraldine says she noticed something strange about Jack that night, about the way he was treating his niece. We didn't have a great connection on our phone call with Geraldine, so you'll have to listen closely. What about the other people at the table? We also heard that Phoebe was there with Gordon McLean and Alphonse Little was there with his brother Jack Little. Do you remember any of them? Yeah, Jack Little. He wasn't very happy with Alberta. Why? Uh, he was acting like he was the fiancé and stuff like that. What do you mean? Kind of being bossy. He was bossy with Alberta? Yeah. Like, overprotective of her? Like, like he didn't agree with what she was doing and that she shouldn't be out and stuff like that. It seemed weird to me that he would be doing that to her since she wasn't really close to him. What was their relationship like? Do you think Alberta liked him? No. Why not? Just the way he would give her attitude. And what was Jack like that night with Alberta? Bossy. If we went outside, it'd be like, where are you going? What are you doing? Why are you going outside? Did that strike you as odd? Yes. Why? He was acting like he was the fiancé of Alberta. He wasn't acting like a, a family member. He was acting like he was the boyfriend, like he was with Alberta. Like that. Did did he and Alberta ever have a relationship? No. We didn't like him. Geraldine had to work the next morning, so she left the bar early. But she said that Alberta and her cousin Carol called her after the bar closed to try to convince her to come back out. Geraldine didn't think her grandparents would approve of her going out, so she stayed home. A decision she has regretted for 27 years. I was back at the hotel, and she was down at the at Bogies. Cause they were wanting to go somewhere, and I had wheels, had vehicle at the time. Oh, so they wanted to ride somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Where did they want to go? I don't know. I don't know. That's why I said I should have not listened that night. Maybe she'd be home. She'll be with us. If I'd only not listened that one night and went out when I, they asked me to. So they keep telling my mom to. You can't. You can, I mean, it's it must be agonizing to think that way. I'm. I've been thinking this way for all those years. If I'd only gone out 
didn't pick them up when they asked me to. She'd be home. I'd know where she is. And I still think it today. If I'd only gone out and picked them up when they wanted to be picked up, they'd be home. None of this would be going on. And my best friend would be having babies. I'm so sorry, Geraldine. <laughs> but yeah, that, that place haunts me all the time. And I just finished talking to my mom. I told her. I said I should have not listened that one night. It's been nearly three decades, and Alberta's death is still so painful for so many of her family and friends. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. The ferry docked in Nanaimo, British Columbia, and we got back into our rental van to drive to Port Alberni. Our GPS said it would take about an hour to get there. Our cameraman, Harold, drove... Marnie, my producer, sat next to him, and I sat in the back. You might be wondering why we were traveling with a cameraman. Well, when we set out to do this story, we never imagined it would turn into this, an eight-episode podcast. We were actually aiming to do a standard news story for TV and online, but we never expected what was going to happen. The drive to Port Alberni was along Highway 4. It was a windy road, and I started to feel sick, sitting in the back seat. I didn't know if it was motion sickness or anxiety. We had a lot of important questions to ask Jack, questions that Alberta's family has also wanted to ask for decades. And even though I'd known this day was coming and had time to prepare, I was incredibly nervous about what we were about to do. We arrived in Port Alberni and wanted to check out the address we had for Jack right away. We didn't necessarily want to knock on the door, but we wanted to get a lay of the land to see what we were dealing with. We plugged the address into the GPS, and just a few minutes later, we were pulling onto a quiet residential street. It wasn't a house, like I'd expected, but a row of eight townhouses, beige two-story buildings, with short fences in front and minimal landscaping. Each townhouse had a white door next to a large living room window. We drove up the street very slowly, looking for the house numbers. They were written on the door, but were really hard to see from the van. We passed the first house, then the second. And before I even saw the house number, I saw a woman standing right in the middle of the big living room window, staring out at the street. I recognized her immediately. I'd seen her photo online. It was Jack's wife, Rosie. It was like she was waiting for us. I ducked down in my seat, 
paranoid that she could see me even though I was in the back and the windows were tinted. I urged Harold to drive faster, and we parked down the street out of her view. My heart was racing. Why was she standing right in the window like that? Was she waiting for us? How did she know we were coming? We had interviewed Claudia the day before in Vancouver. Maybe she told another family member that we were coming to try to find Jack. And maybe they told Rosie. We didn't have a concrete plan, but when I imagined approaching Jack, I didn't picture Rosie there. We parked in a spot where we could see their house, but still far enough away that we weren't arousing suspicion. What should we do? Knock on the door and ask, is Jack home? Wait until Rosie left and then knock on the door? We were still trying to figure out our next steps when a white cable van drove past us and stopped right in front of Jack's house. When I realized what happened, relief flooded over me. Rosie wasn't waiting for us. She was waiting for the cable guy to show up. The cable guy went inside, and we tried to figure out what we should do next. We wanted to know if Rosie was home for the day, or if she'd be leaving. We knew where she worked, so we called her office. Good afternoon. Council Phyllis speaking. Hi there, Rosie Marsden, please. Um, Rosie's out of the office on lunch right now. Would you like her voicemail? Um, what time is she expected back? Uh, she's, I'm not sure. She's on a late lunch, so um, she, she's got an appointment. So. Is there we settled in. Our new plan was to wait until Rosie left to go back to work, and then we would knock on the door. We had no idea if Jack would be home, or even if he still lived with Rosie. After about half an hour, we saw the cable guy start packing up his van, and we got another idea. My producer Marnie waited at the end of the block, and when the cable guy left, she flagged him down and asked him if Jack was home. The cable guy said he'd been all over the house, but Jack wasn't there. Rosie was the only one home. We weren't sure what to do next. We could wait outside all day, but what if Jack never showed up? What if he didn't even live there anymore? We decided to contact another family member, Alberta's uncle, Wally Samuel. He also lived in Port Alberni. We were a little reluctant to contact him because we didn't know how close he and Jack were. And we were worried that he might tip off Jack that we were in town and we were looking for him but we were running out of options, so we took a chance. Wally met us for coffee and agreed to do an interview about Alberta. Yeah. What was Alberta like? Oh, she's a nice uh, young girl, you know, like she's a daughter to us. Like, um, she liked having fun, you know, she worked hard. She always had a job and had fun on the weekends like any other young person. It's been really hard because some of our immediate family members were uh, person of interest and sus suspects in uh, being involved with Alberta that night. But uh, nobody seems to be cooperating as uh, the so-called witnesses or people that were in, in uh, contact with uh, Alberta that night. And a lot of them were family members. And they're not. They're not talking. They're not talking. I don't know if they ever told the family they're their version, their story of uh, what, how they were seeing Alberta that night, what she was doing, or where they seen her, and that's the real frustrating part. 
uh, immediate family members and community members have not been cooperating with the family. That's part of Alberta's story I hadn't really considered before. Like Alberta, I come from a really big family. Lots of aunts and uncles, tons of cousins. There's always a family event happening. Birthday parties, graduations, weddings, funerals. I can't imagine what it's been like for Alberta's family to go to these everyday events with a man some people suspect was involved in her murder. And although some family members have suspected Jack from the very beginning, no one we talked to has directly confronted him with their questions. And I know that you've, you haven't spoken to him about any of this, but if you, were, if you could ask him something, what would you want to know? I would like to know where he was that night and if he's seen him and uh, where he last seen her, you know, and compared with other stories. But, you know, what I heard was that they were all together in a bar that night, him and the other, other people from uh, that community. And Alberta. Yep, and Alberta. And there is a rumor that he hosted a party. That's what I heard, yeah. There was a party at his house uh, that night, and that's all I know. And I heard that he cleaned up his house. Uh, you know, this is all rumors I hear. I'm, I'm, I wasn't there, so I just go by what I'm told. I was glad we called Wally not just because he gave us this interview, but because he also gave us the information we needed about Jack. Yes, he lived in Port Alberni. Yes, we had the right address. Yes, he would be home later that afternoon. Wally said Jack worked as a courier. He drove from Port Alberni to Nanaimo, to Tofino and back, every day. The irony is that we had spent all of this time trying to find out where Jack was and what he did, and the information was right in front of us. We just didn't know where to look. Wally showed us his phone. He's active on social media, and he's part of a Facebook group for people looking for rides around Vancouver Island. It's a group that Jack is also a part of, one that he posts in every day, looking for passengers. This is Jack's post from the day we were looking for him. Off to our beautiful west coast as usual, folks. Port Alberni to Yuki at 10ish, then leave Yuki to Tofino at 11.50. Tofino to Port Alberni, 1ish. Port Alberni to Nanaimo at 3.45. Return to Port Alberni as leave Nanaimo at 5.15. Hook me up if you need a ride. Text me. Be safe out there. leaving Nanaimo at 5.15 and returning to Port Alberni. According to his post in this group, Jack would be back in Port Alberni around supper time. I remember one of my very first conversations with Gary Kerr about his investigation into Alberta's murder. He outlined all the reasons that he suspected Alberta's Uncle Jack. Number one, he was the last person seen with her and couldn't remember key events from the night she disappeared. Number two, Jack said she left with a mysterious white guy that police could never find and didn't believe existed. Number three, after Alberta's body was found, Jack stopped talking to the police and refused to take a lie detector. Number four, 
shortly after Alberta's body was found. Jack left town and moved hundreds of kilometers away. It might seem like suspicious behavior, sure, but not exactly a silver bullet. I know that Gary and Rick haven't told me everything they know about the case. There's something called hold-back information, key details in an investigation that only a handful of police officers are privy to, information that only a perpetrator would know. Gary hasn't shared that information with us because he says he doesn't want to jeopardize the investigation into Alberta's murder. So maybe there's more that has made him convinced that Jack killed Alberta. But I'm not so sure. I still have questions about that night, and I'm going to have to face my anxiety to try to answer them. We headed back to Jack's house. We needed to figure out the best place to park so that when he got home, we would be ready to jump out of the van and try to talk to him. There was a front door and a back door. The back door was connected to a little carport, and in front, the street was wide enough that people parked right in front of the townhouses. We didn't know which entrance Jack would use, so we parked in a spot where we could see both. In order to find out more about Alberta's last night, we needed to try to get Jack to engage with us. We thought he'd be more likely to talk to me if I was alone, if my producer and cameraman stayed back in the van and filmed from there. But I wasn't so sure about that approach. Truthfully, it made me nervous. I had no idea how Jack would react, and I didn't want to be stuck out there on my own. We called our senior producer in Toronto to discuss. I think it's there's a compelling argument like if he says, look, you know, I, I've been living with this all these years. We decided that instead of filming from the van, Harold, our camera guy, would come out with me, but stay back a little and hold his camera in his hand and not on his shoulder. Okay, we'll stay in touch some more and uh, good luck there for the next few hours anyway. So now we had a plan. We knew Jack was coming home. We were in a good spot. All we had to do was wait. And wait. And wait. Waiting can be stressful. You can't do much when you're sitting in a van with your colleagues. There are only so many times you can go over the plan, go over the questions, imagine how things will unfold. There's a lot of time to think about everything that could go wrong. I grew more and more anxious the longer we sat there. I'd only ever done one other unscheduled interview before. Excuse me, Dr. Clement, I'd like to ask you a few questions. I'm Connie Walker from the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. About a completely unrelated story. It was a similar scenario, though. Sitting in a van for hours, riddled with anxiety, not sure if the guy I wanted to talk to would even show up. But he did. Can you give us some names of people that you've helped? Get in the car. And it was awful. The man we confronted got angry, pointed his finger in my face, and at one point, he actually reached out and touched my cheek. Remember, you get most of your information from Please don't touch me. Get off my property. Don't touch off me. Off my property. I'm getting off your property. Right now. He didn't off actually slap me. But I think he wanted to. And although his reaction in the interview revealed a lot, 
we didn't actually get any answers to our questions. I didn't want the same thing to happen with Jack. As the minutes passed, the tension got even worse. Our camera was set up in the back, ready to roll at the push of a button. I had my mic on, and I was ready to go. Marnie was in the driver's seat, with a little handycam. She was planning to film from the front window, but also be ready to start the van if we needed to get out of there quickly. Every car that pulled onto the street made my heart race. Was this him? No, but only a moment of relief until I was jumpy again. Wally told us that Jack drove either a dark SUV or a black Dodge Caravan. After we'd been waiting outside for a few hours, a black van pulled up and parked in front of Jack's house. My heart raced. This was it, the black van. It stayed parked there for a few seconds before anyone got out. Was it Jack? Was this our chance? It was a bit earlier than we were expecting. Let's wait and see. No. But then an elderly man got out of the van from the passenger side. He moved very slowly and walked with a cane. I didn't recognize him. Two other men got out of the van, but neither was Jack. I didn't know what to do. The other people are going in the house. It wasn't Jack. The van only stayed for a few minutes and then left, and our wait began again. One of the neighbors came out to walk her dog and walked right by the passenger side window where I sat. I turned away and tried to avoid eye contact. If anyone was paying attention to us, it must have seemed so strange. Three people sitting in a van on a residential street for hours on a Tuesday afternoon. It was starting to get dark. Jack should have been home by now. But maybe he stopped somewhere else. Maybe he had car trouble. Maybe he and Rosie were going out for dinner that night. When the sun starts to set, there's a small window camera people call magic hour, when there's still enough light to be able to shoot, and the sky looks incredible. But it doesn't last long. Our camera guy, Harold, began to worry that we were losing our light. We only had another 10 or 15 minutes before it would be too dark to shoot anything and would have to pack up and call it a night. I felt conflicted when he said that. I didn't want a day of anxiety and waiting to be for nothing. But honestly, I was mostly relieved. We could put it off for tomorrow, try again in the morning. It would be light out. Things look better in the daytime. We decided to wait another few minutes. But suddenly, headlights swung into the street and lit up our front seat. A dark SUV was pulling into the carport. It was him. I jumped out of the van and quickly crossed the street. I saw Jack get out of his car and start toward the back door. Jack? I'm Connie Walker. I'm a reporter at CBC News. Do you have a minute? We're doing a story about Alberta and we were hoping to talk to you, Alberta Williams. Jack looked up at me when I called his name, but as soon as I mentioned Alberta, he turned away. We really need your help trying to piece together the final night that before she vanished. And so 
Were you with her that night? Was she at your house? Jack was looking down at his keys and walking quickly to his back door. Rosie had been doing dishes at the kitchen sink, and as soon as she saw me and the camera, she flipped the blinds closed with a flick of her hand. Can you tell us? We just want to ask a few questions about it. Some people have... working all day, so sorry. Was she there that night? Some people think you might have been involved, Jack, were you? Jack walked into the house and closed the door. We just, just have a few questions. Can we come back tomorrow? All that for that. A whole lot of nothing. I was relieved that things didn't escalate, but also surprised by how calm Jack was. He seemed unflappable. When Jack went inside and closed the door, I could still see inside their house, through a small window on the back door. I saw Jack walk through their kitchen and into their living room, where he sat on a chair and slowly started taking his shoes off, like it was any other day. I watched for a minute and then headed back to the van to regroup. Well, I hope he talks to us. I don't know what to say after that. Wally had given us a number for Jack, so we decided to call. Let him know that we really wanted to talk to him, and if now wasn't convenient, we could come back any time. Rosie answered the phone. Hello? Hello? Hi, is Jack available? Uh, he's just eating dinner right now. Okay, should I call back in a bit? Um, who's calling? It's Connie Walker calling from CBC News. I was just wondering if tonight wasn't a good night, if we could potentially talk to him tomorrow. Um. We, we are going to do the story, and, and I think it's really important to have Jack's side of the story. We, de- we want to give him a chance to be heard, and, and we want to give him a chance to, to tell us his, his side of the story. Uh, maybe try back tomorrow. Okay, I'll try back tomorrow. What time is a good time to reach him? I'm not too sure. He works 10 hours a day, so... Well, we can come anytime. We can come first thing in the morning, or we can meet him on a, a lunch break. Anytime that's convenient for him, we can definitely come. I know that it's, you know, it's we're, we're definitely doing this story about Alberta, and we're really, we really just need his help trying to piece together some of the, the last hours of her life. And, and it's really important to have his side of this story because we're speaking to other people and, you know, we want to make sure that we're being fair and balanced. Well, try him back again tomorrow. Okay, well, we'll, we'll try again in the morning maybe and, and see how it goes. But... Uh, Please think about it, because it's, it's, you know, we are doing this story. We've heard from a few other people that have raised some concerns about Jack, and we really want to give him a chance to tell his side of the story. I understand, you know, he, he spoke to other police about uh, seeing someone in a pickup truck, and we really want to get as many details as we can about, you know, what happened. All right. Okay, thank you very much. I appreciate it, and we'll try to call you tomorrow. 
All right. Thank you. So, I guess we'll try them again tomorrow. They don't seem, no, they didn't hang out, which is mm -hmm. a good sign. He was very calm. I mean, because you heard him on the, I work 10 hours a day. I'm like, okay, well, well, we'll come anytime. Yeah. Jack may not have been rattled, but I was. I was exhausted, mentally and physically. We left and hoped for a better outcome tomorrow. The next morning, we got up early. We wanted to call Jack from right outside his house. So in the off chance he had spent the night thinking it over and decided he wanted to talk, we'd be ready. Hello. Hi, Jack. It's Connie Walker calling from CBC. Sorry, I'm just out the door. I'm just going for work. Thank you. Yeah, we just would like to do, talk to you for a quick few minutes. A few seconds later, Jack walked out his door. There he is. Hi, Jack. We just really want a, a couple of minutes. I don't know if you, you can spare a few minutes to chat with us. But we're, Sorry, I can't. I'm already going to wait for work. Sorry. We really just want to get your side of the story. We're doing the story about Alberta, and we really want to hear from you about her last night. Can you tell us anything about it? Was she at your house? Was she there? I wasn't surprised Jack refused to talk to us, but I was disappointed. We'd come all this way, and we didn't get two words out of him about Alberta. We were no closer to finding any answers about her last night, and we were running out of options. We waited for a few minutes and tried calling him again. Your call has been forwarded to a voicemail service that is not been initialized by the customer you are calling. We sat in the van for a few minutes, not saying much, and not really sure what to do next. When the phone rang, it was Jack, and we scrambled to record the call. Okay, thanks Jack, I, I really appreciate that. We'll, we definitely want to speak to you. If we can set up a time, that's exactly what we want to do. I will let you know later on today. Thank you. So can we'll call you back in, in this afternoon? I will call you when I'm free, okay? I'm, I'm busy. Thank you. But Jack never called back. We waited until early that evening and tried him one last time. It's Connie calling from CBC News. I'm just wondering if uh, there's a time we can talk today. Just a moment. He's pulled over. Connie, you got a pen handy? Yes, I do. One, two, five, zero. Who's who's this I'm calling? Uh, just take the number, please, and I'll tell you. Okay. Five, zero. Yep. Yep. Five, three, seven, two. Okay, who's that? No, no further communication. If you have any questions, you talk to my lawyer, Stephen Littley. Stephen. I want to hear from you again. Little Little and L-Y. L-I-T-T-L-E-Y? Little and L-Y. You know how to spell little? Uh, yes, I know how to spell little. I mean, we, we really just wanted to talk to you for a few minutes and ask you about Alberta's last night. We really want to get your side of the story. Goodbye. Bye. 
We contacted Jack's lawyer. In an email, he said, Mr. Little will not be making himself available for an interview with you. He asks that you not contact him or his household any further with respect to this matter. It was official. Like the police 27 years ago, our investigation hit a brick wall. We got back on the ferry to Vancouver, exhausted and disappointed. I thought our story might be over, but it turns out it was just beginning. We were about to hear from someone with more information, someone who had never spoken to the police. A man who said he saw Alberta with someone else after she left the bar that night. On the next episode of Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams? I don't know why they're not telling you guys the story. What, what we heard was that Alberta was, was at the bar that night. Yes, that's why they last seen her. And somebody saw, I think somebody saw that, that truck that she was taken into, and the two guys that brought her in. He was uh, sleeping in a back bedroom, as I recall, when... Uh, when Jack Little arrived at the his own house with Alberta. When I was sleeping, I remember being hearing noises out in the, in the house. I do remember seeing Carol there, and I do remember seeing um, Alberta. To watch the video of our encounter with Jack and explore more of the story, visit our website at cbc.ca slash whokilledalbertawilliams. You can listen to episodes online or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Missing and Murdered, Who Killed Alberta Williams is written and hosted by me, Connie Walker. The producer is Marnie Luke and the associate producer is Lori Ward. Technical production by Ashley Walters, Cecil Fernandez and Harold Dupuy. Arif Narani is a consulting producer and Heather Evans is senior producer of the CBC News Investigative Unit. For more CBC Original Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash originalpodcasts.